Operations, the show where we look under the hood of companies in hypergrowth. My name is Sean Lane. We've spent the majority of the time on this show looking at the work of operators, what they've built, how they've built it, and how their work has powered the companies that they are at through hypergrowth. Where we haven't spent enough time, though, is on the career development of the operators themselves. How did they get themselves into a position to make that impact? What are the different paths and options available to ops folks? Today, we're going to change that by looking at a specific role that could be a future landing spot for people who are in ops today, the GM. And our guest today is someone who started their career in ops and then leveraged that experience to make the jump into sales leadership and ultimately to become the GM at one of the most notable hypergrowth companies out there today. Our guest today is Ryan Tobin, the Senior Vice President and GM of EMEA for Gainsight. If you aren't familiar, Gainsight is the leading customer success platform. They made headlines recently when they took on a majority investment from Vista Equity Partners that valued the company at $1.1 billion. I should also point out that Ryan and I recorded this conversation prior to the Vista announcement. Now, Ryan spent his first three and a half years at Gainsight working stateside before moving to London in February of 2020 to lead their European office as the GM. In our conversation, we're going to talk about what the hell a GM does, how Ryan leverages his ops experience in his work today, and why it's so hard to shake the imposter syndrome of having never carried a bag in sales. Let's start with this role of the general manager or or the GM itself. I asked Ryan to break down for me the scope of his job and the different responsibilities he thinks about every day. Functionally, that role is somewhat easier to explain. I am responsible for our sales, marketing, and post-sales, so customer success and services for the region. We have a, a satellite office in London, and then we also have, because Gainsight's got about half our companies in India, we also have a number of uh, teammates that are in India. So functionally, that's sort of my role, uh, report into CEO uh, for this part of the business. And then work super closely with the cross-functional leaders of like the head of customer success, head of sales, head of marketing to make sure that we're all aligned. Sort of more practically on what the function is, it's, it's a good question. And actually, when I started the role, the previous GM, my predecessor, a guy by the name of Dan Steinman, who literally wrote the book on customer success and moved to Europe to build the movement around customer success and then gain sight with it. He was the GM and I was coming over and we kind of did this big QBR for the team. And I said to the team, I honestly don't know what I'm supposed to do as a GM. I know what Dan did, (laughs) which was get on stage and, you know, evangelize what we're doing. Uh, but that's not my background and that's not what I've been asked to do. So um, I kind of opened up with, you know, I've been leading ops and sales for the most part. I know that's part of the job. It's not all the job. So then I've since then, that was like in February, also in a pre-COVID world. So a lot's changed, but... Uh, yeah, not, not getting up on stage anymore. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not a lot of on stage, exactly. I have kind of come in with, at least for me, what the GM role is. And it's sort of in three parts. And this is kind of how I explained it to the team at our mid-year 
our mid-year Zoom offsite. The first is representing the the team internally and externally. So like, you know, at, at what we call gravity, but senior executive meetings, cross-functionally, if I need to push for needs and get headcount or budget or work with engineering or whatever it is internally, uh, or speak at like one of our all hands, that's a big part, making sure that, you know, as a satellite office in particular, you know, there's a definite concern that people are forgetting about us. So that's sort of one. And then the external side also, which is more reactive external stuff, talking to a VC about their port, port codes, talking on a podcast, doing a presentation, meeting a customer, meeting a prospect, sort of whatever the team asks me to do in a more reactive manner as things are going on. The, the second is backing up the leaders on my team, which is the gentleman who runs sales, the woman who runs marketing, and the gentleman who runs customer success, and just covering for them when they need to focus on other things. So like for our customer success leader, he's got a number of initiatives this quarter. We invest heavily in our partner ecosystem to implement Gainsight. So that does fall in his realm because sort of post-sales, but he's got... But I am taking a decent amount of that now because we have other priorities that he wants to focus on. So like, how do I back him up? And then the last one is an attempt to look more than six months out. So, and this is where I'm more proactive. So what is, what am I pushing on the team? What am I asking people to do? What am I focusing my time on? So, you know, one thing for Gainsight as an example is managed service providers are resellers, managed service providers, you know, organizations that, you know, will sell software or sell hardware and then actually manage it for the end customer. They have been on a path to adopt the concept of customer success. So they pose a potential growth opportunity for Gainsight, but it's not going to, we're not going to hit or miss our number this quarter or next quarter based on them. We do have to have small wins and small progressions with them in order to build on that in Q1 to Q3 next year. So when the, while the team doesn't have the capacity to spend as much time on them today, I am trying to and trying to push the little things that aren't going to put a lot of dollars in people's pockets this quarter, but hopefully will in the future. So like that's kind of how I think about the third part. Okay, let's recap Ryan's three areas of focus as the GM. Number one, he represents his team, specifically the EMEA group, internally and externally. Number two, he provides support for the go-to-market leaders within his team for any specific initiatives that they are working on. And number three, he's proactively and strategically looking more than six months out at the big rocks and opportunities for his part of the business. So with this scope in mind, the next question is, how exactly does one become a GM? Ryan was at Gainsight for three and a half years before moving into this role. So for folks like you or me wondering about whether a GM role might make sense for us in our career path, I want to understand how a role model like Ryan went about that journey. So... You know, I, I was a consultant and I wasn't in tech. I was sort of consulting customer strategy consulting and didn't like it. And so I applied for a bunch of jobs, ended up at Success Factors, running 
what was pricing strategy, which coincidentally, or not coincidentally, but it happened to sit under operations, sales ops, which I have since learned is not all that usual, but that's how it worked there. Hmm. I had no idea what sales ops was. I didn't know what friggin' sales was basically at the time. Um, and it was, I didn't, I wasn't looking for tech specifically. So I kind of fell into this, this role, but I liked the role that I was doing. And that sort of opened my world to like the sales side of things, the operation side of things, the tech side of things. And I really liked it. I really liked the numbers and the strategy side of what I was doing and the cultural aspect of what sales does. And then, and sort of the camaraderie, uh, and then the, uh, and then tech in general was interesting because it's this growing, uh, growing world, particularly SaaS. So I got my path there, um, and I actually, as I was doing that at Success Factors, I have a sort of a very meaningful moment, I guess, um, where it's the end of a quarter, and I'm at late at my desk, sort of helping on some deals, like helping with like a pricing deals desk kind of. Uh, stuff on some big deals that were coming through. And I'm sitting right next to this woman uh, by the name of Marjorie Tukas, who at the time ran uh, SNB for Success Factors. And I'm kind of coaching this rep on a deal in terms of how to work the pricing, who to talk to, like, here's how you think about it. And afterwards, she was like, you sound like a sales manager. Uh, and that was the first time I ever thought about, like, I want to go, is sales the right path? You know, I kind of grew up on the East coast and went to the prep school and went to get my MBA and like sales was like a dirty thing, you know, that wasn't happening for, you know, people like, uh, you know, who had gone to business school and sort of started to really change my mind, but I really liked ops. I really liked what I was doing. Things were going well. So I wasn't really pursuing it. Uh, I also worked in big enterprise sales at the time. So it was like these guys who would be doing it, these guys, uh, been doing this for so long and these on the road all the time and these huge deal cycles and it didn't seem like it was like a natural transition. So then I uh, ended up going to Mixpanel and when I was at Mixpanel, it was the first time I really got into SMB and fast deal cycles and data and the funnel and enabling lots of reps and all of these things that really do speak well to people who have an operations mindset and who like that part of the business. So that's where I, you know, kind of started to think to myself that I think I can, I can do this. And frankly, all these things that I've been trying to get sales leaders and sales reps to do as this influencer, hopefully I can, with more sort of control, get the chance to do that. So that's sort of what sparked, um, my interest in sales. So I uh, had the opportunity to be acting CRO for a little bit at mixed panel, although uh, that was always going to be a temporary role. And so after that, I kind of started looking for a sales leader role, came to find out that nobody really wanted to hire me for a sales leader role because I was an ops guy. And the few people who were talking to me, they really just weren't at companies that I was super interested in talking to. So I ended up going to Gainsight, met Nick, and I told him what I wanted to do. And he told me what he wanted, which was somebody to sort of build this RevOps concept, working with marketing and sales. And, and then in the future, if things go well, you know, he would champion me to sort of take that sort of step that I wanted to take. And that's kind of how it worked out. And, you know, I built up RevOps at 
gain sight. It did go well. I sort of slowly got more responsibility and then slowly they started putting S and B and things under me. And then eventually I really just made the jump over to the sales organization. And truth be told, a lot of this, sometimes I ask myself like which one I like more because I definitely like the numbers and I definitely like understanding the funnel and what's going on. And like the more numbers, the better because it can help you see the trends and that kind of thing. But frankly, you know, I worried that if I stayed in ops, I would be capped at sort of a VP of ops and maybe I'd find someone who'd, who'd promote me to COO eventually, it, but would it be the kind of role I wanted or, or how fast would that be? And I felt like if I went into sales, owning that number and sort of being the person responsible versus the person that was advising the person responsible uh, sort of was was going to be the more fruitful path over the course of, of my career. So that's, that's kind of what my, my mentality was. That's so interesting. I, I've got a bunch, bunch of follow-up questions for you, but like one of the things that really resonates with me with what you're saying, it's, and it's really funny how similar you are. We just had a recent guest, um, Emmanuel Scala, who's the senior vice president of customer success at Toast. And she also had like this operations to sales to CS path. And one of the things she said that really stuck out with me, and I think maybe you would identify with this as well, is she's like, I get just as much of a thrill behind a spreadsheet and looking at numbers as I do in a customer facing uh, situation, right? And, and basically like that juxtaposition of those two things side by side basically has driven her to try to do a little bit of both in her career. And I feel like that's, that's part of the transition that you've been making too. I'm curious, right? When you were getting Nick and Gainsight to make that bet and you were building out RevOps and ultimately made the jump into sales later on at Gainsight, a lot of times you'll hear people say, well, you can't be a sales leader if you haven't carried a bag. Right, if you haven't held a quota on your own in the past, and I'm curious how much of that was in the back of your mind as you were making this jump, and like if you had kind of like this weird imposter syndrome as you're trying to make that transition internally at Gainsight and ultimately lead salespeople. So, um, a couple of things there. I think that when I am behind a spreadsheet and I find a trend that I think can actually be meaningful. I agree. I get as much um, sort of satisfaction and excitement out of that mm. as I do leaving a meeting being like, oh, we just crushed it. <laughs> and I have tried to sell to Emmanuel. So I wish I knew that we had that because really <laughs> uh, I would have brought that up uh, when we were meeting. But that's a different story. Uh, well, uh, I, got you a, I got you a foot in the door now. <laughs> fair, enough, fair enough. The idea that... I have never carried a bag is very much prominent in my mind. And at Gainsight, I've kind of gotten over it because frankly, I leaned heavily into that. Like I, I actually, when I first took the role, Oh no, I take that back. When I first took, so my last role at Gainsight before I went to the GM as I ran, uh, PX, which is our product experience tool. It's an acquired company. Um, and it was a big focus area, big growth area, first acquisition for Gainsight. So we were when they were deciding to sort of make the offer to me to, to run that, one of our board members who is uh, the sales board member, like he is the, he is the guy and he's great, 
he was sort of all over me about, are you the right person because you've never carried it back? And I need someone who's in the trenches and selling and doing these things. Um, and luckily, Nick and, and at the time my boss, Brian, sort of said, yes, he is, but did not. Uh, it was not the most pleasant of conversations <laughs> I remember during this. But sort of as part of that, like I would actually use him and say, okay, what would you do? What deals would you be on? And I try to bring myself to as many conversations as possible with customers where I can add something. And for me, and what I would guess for a lot of ops people, strategy and ops people, for me, that's during disco. And I learned that pretty early on. I'm a pretty broad business background. We're selling generally to customer success. I understand customer success and sales. And we're selling to SaaS. I understand SaaS. So I can, I know that if I show up in an intro call, a disco call, I can understand their business substantially better than the rep can, substantially better probably than the, than the first level manager can. So I know that I can add something and then be there sort of with the rep to be like, I'm adding value. I'm not just the executive you had to bring to the call. So that's really what I tried to lean into. Um, and then after I did that a, a bunch and sort of pushed away from my natural tendency, which is to, you know, just look at the numbers into how do I you know, understand these customers and deals that became something that doesn't really come up anymore. Uh, not a game site. It does, however, you know, occasionally if I t- take a recruiter call or something like that, that's where it does come up still in terms of, well, you've been doing this, you've been running sales, parts of sales for the last three years, but, you know, you didn't say it right, you didn't do this, you didn't. And my sort of talk track around that has always been like, this, this is my background. This is my benefits. These are my drawbacks. You're, you're either going to be bought in or not. If you're not, I can't convince you otherwise, which kind of sucks, but you know, it's easier than, you know, I'd rather lean into it and lean into the benefits versus just focus on the negatives. I love the way that Ryan leans into his background and owns the experiences that he does bring to the table, as opposed to being put into some box as a result of having never carried a bag. And to be honest, I think that the tours of duty he has done in all of those different roles have set him up for the unique value that he's able to bring to those deals and bring to the discovery that he's talking about. I see the same thing internally at Drift all the time. I'll jump on a call with one of our prospects or one of our customers if they're talking to our team about how to best implement Drift or how to instrument and measure the impact of Drift. Because I do that for our own company every single day. So my conversations with ops leaders within our customers are the types of conversations that, frankly, I'm uniquely positioned to have. The difference now, of course, for Ryan is that as the GM, he owns the whole thing, not just ops, right? He, and we've talked about how Ryan saw his ops background as an asset, but he mentioned that making this transition from ops to sales to GM was also a transition from an influence role to an ownership role. So I was curious now, looking back a few years removed from being only an ops, has his perspective of operations teams or the relationships between ops and sales, has that perspective changed? So there's a couple areas. On, on one side, I think that the big difference is there's, there's a sort of human aspect of what's going on 
in the deal or with a rep or with a team that when you're having all those one-on-ones and you're going to these calls together and you're living some of these deals, you focus on first. And when you're in ops and you have every rep and every manager to think about, you think you know that that, is, that exists and you have to think that way. But it's also really hard because you're also trying to get what you need to get done. So, you know, things like how you think about comp or like a spiff, like it's me. I guess spiffs, I think of very differently than I did when I was, you know, because like there are certain spiffs that on paper could be super expensive. So then when you fight for in ops with finance, you get it approved, you're so excited and you launch it and you're like, there is two parts in it that it's like, nobody's going to do this. And it's super easy to see because you work with the reps and you're like, they're not going to do this part. Like it's not going to happen. And it's a lot of work to do that part. You want it there because you don't, you want to make sure that there's not like gaming of the system or something like that, but it's a much bigger hurdle than you appreciate. So like those are, there are certain things that sort of human versus maybe spreadsheet that, that I think I see sort of another, another part, which when I was at the success factors at the time I was running ops there, and uh, a guy who ran North America for sales for us, a guy by the name of Dave Dyer, he, he had a big organization. He was much more senior than I was. I mean, I was the head of ops, but you know, he had hundreds of people and salespeople and SCs and all stuff in his organization. We were at his offsite and we're doing planning for the following year. And he said to me, kind of pulled me aside, and he was pushing for a dedicated sales ops person for him. I was like, why are we going to do that? Like, and he wanted to report to him. He's like, I want it out of your organization. I want to report. And I was like, why? Like, that's inefficient. Like, we're doing all these things. And he said to me, he's like, I don't feel like a customer of the ops team. And I honestly, at the time, I was like, what are you talking about? Like, all these things that we do for you, like, we build this, we build that. But then going to a similar role that he had, not as big a role as he had, because we're not as big a company, similar role. And thinking about his boss there, who was the equivalent, he was president, right? And he, and for me, it's the CEO because we don't have a, a CRO at the moment. And I frequently now think the same as he did, which is there are things that I want to get done that I need ops help for. And I'm just not a priority because I'm only a part of the business and everything is about what the CEO or if, one, if we had a CRO, CRO or a CMO want to do across the company versus this idea of my area. And I imagine it only gets worse if, if you're just running like the East or if you're running the Northeast, you know, these, these smaller things, these smaller analyses that sometimes I want to do that I cannot get done. And I feel now, and granted I'm biased and, you know, <laughs> for myself, but I, a lot of times feel like this small analysis that I want to do that I need some time from you to do is actually going to move the needle more than the big stuff that the CEO just came up with. Cause his is an idea and who knows if it'll work. Mine is like a tactical, like where this is what we're going to try to do right now. So that is like one area that that's been pretty different. For me, this this feeling where I always thought I treated everybody great as an ops leader, and now that I'm on the other side, and by the way, I love our ops team. Like, love they're great. So this isn't a matter of them; it's just a perspective, sort of, right. on all these things. I will also say, though, just one other point um, to to give the other side. 
sometimes uh, Caitlin, who runs ops for us, uh, my name is Caitlin Quinlan, she will push on a forecast call on a deal, like one of, one of our deals. And I'm so far into this deal that I get defensive and then I have to take a step back and I'm like, man, she is right. This is the kind of thing I would have done when I ran ops, but you get close to the rep, you get close to the deal. You're like, all of a sudden you start to make excuses. So that has been somewhere where it's really helped me. And I try to, I try to go back to my ops perspective. Just the fact that Ryan can actually take a step back and see both sides of these relationships is to me a benefit of his perspective. And I've said on this show before that I do think that if you're a sales leader or a CS leader or any type of manager, you should put your team first and you should be looking out for your team's best interest. And then on top of that, we as operators will often need to come in to bring a more objective lens to the same problems or challenges and make the best decision or best prioritization call that we can. But Ryan's story should also encourage us to be constantly checking in with our internal customers to make sure they actually do feel like customers or that the work that we're doing for them is actually what they think will move the needle. Because if they don't feel that way, or if they don't feel like they are truly customers, then why are we here? What are we doing? Let's get more concrete, right? Let's look at a specific example from Ryan's world, fighting for budget. Imagine a scenario where one of those same leaders that Ryan is talking about needs to fight for budget for their team. How can they best do that? And how does someone with Ryan's experience in both ops and sales, how does he think about these conversations? So this is something where I think that having the opportunity to, to be in ops and lead ops has been immensely helpful for me, as, especially now in having the multiple functions uh, and trying to sort of wrap it all up under, under sort of single goals. For, for Insight, you know, we're, you know, just like many companies, we are kicking off planning right now. I'm currently in the middle of writing my, my paper for uh, the next two-year plan for EMEA. And we're basically going to go through, there's about, there's about eight papers on different things that, that are being written for planning. We do a draft session where we talk about it and strategize. And then we do two weeks later, we kind of finalize. But then, and as part of this, these are sort of big picture concepts that we're trying to do goals. And then to the side of that, FPA and the RevOps team are sort of building out the models and the plans and how does all that work. And then these papers are meant to be the defense for the different areas that the company is going to invest in or not invest in as the case may be. And so is this like, when you say paper, is this like literally like prose? Like this is a report or is this like yeah. bullet points? Like what, what does this look like? So it's a paper. It's, it's what are we doing? Why are we doing it? How are we going to do it? Wow. What are the risks? And there's a lot of bullet points. Like it's not, you know, it's not creative nonfiction or anything, but, <laughs> uh, but it is, it, it's in a Google doc word, Google Word doc or however you say it. And there's like charts in the back that I want to show. Interestingly enough, for me, there's actually a lot of charts. For some of the other people writing them, there's no charts because it's just how we think about things differently. And then some standardization. So you can like have like a a one pager that kind of summarizes it. But yeah, the idea is like everybody needs to read everybody else's papers. That's on the exact stuff. So anyway, so we go through this. My sort of philosophy, and this is both with my team in Europe, but then also on the to the to the leadership is generally speaking, 
the leadership team, I am aware, doesn't really knows that, that that we in the field in Europe know more about what we need than they do. And that that idea, because I've been in ops and I've been in planning, like it is very tangible to me. I don't think that a lot of people in my shoes who haven't had that experience in planning appreciate that. Right. So what what they're really looking for from my perspective is some goals they can measure us by both in that we have this concept, right? This concept of this paired metric, right? So if, if AR, if I have an ARR target two years out, um, my paired metric is my CAC ratio, right? So like those, yes, I can grow, but I can't spend too much. I can spend a certain amount. What do we agree on? So kind of circle around that. Logically, I need to, to, to be reasonable. So like people buy into like, oh, these are, these are reasonable things um, in terms of we're going to try to grow. And then here are the specific asks that I'm planning. And I have to have conviction around them. They're going to move the needle because of this, but I'll stay under my CAC ratio, which makes sense to my ARR. And like, here it is all in a bundle. And the rest of it is really just, am I being, am I holding up my part of the bargain? I'm asking for resources. Am I committing to delivering something? Like even today, I had a conversation with my, my sales leader here. We're talking about heads that we need to hire in order to hit our numbers next year. Um, and he's worried about ramp time. And we have traditionally in Europe had slower ramp time than, uh, than in the U.S. And I think part of that's probably the distributed model where we're, we're younger, um, you know, we're further behind in, in the maturity of CS, lots of different reasons. But I basically said to him, I'm like, listen, I appreciate that. And this is not as clear as I'm about to say it because we argued it before. <laughs> but uh, I appreciate your concern and that this has been how it's been in Europe for the last few years. But that is worse than it is in the U.S. And I cannot walk into our exec staff meeting and tell them that we're going to be a lot worse at this thing, at, at ramping than everybody else. Like this, that needs to be something you and I fix. I cannot bring that up. And that, and he's like, fair enough. We'll, we'll fix it. He's like, that's a concern I have. And so it was productive, but it went, goes two ways, right? I, with him had to be like, I, I, I think that I've seen other people sort of bring all of their problems to the executive stuff when planning. And then it gets noisy and it's hard to buy into what they're saying versus some of the problems that specifically the exec team can help with. And then the rest of your problems, you're the leader, you got to deal with right. it. Right. And I'm curious, as you talk about like writing your paper and you have to kind of go back to the executive team or you're comparing yourself to these other business units, how much of that revenue target and the paired, the paired metric that you're talking about are things that you are arriving at and it's bottoms up versus the company says from a top down perspective, this is the revenue target. This is the paired metric, like go figure out how to get there. It is. So Nick gave me a first metric, which I elected to not use uh, (laughs) because my, my assessment, my view was, and and I, I asked him first, I didn't just like ignore him. I was like, is this okay? Because I think that your first metric is so above and beyond what I think is reasonable that it'll change how we need to plan. Like mm. it, it'll be 
we'll have to do something much bigger and that's a much bigger risk, much bigger cost is that what we want to do. So in that case, I got to choose some, but I will go into this first one and they're part of the, the sort of first round is, you know, I don't think I'm sandbagging, but if they think I'm sandbagging, this is their opportunity to tell me they think I'm sandbagging. Like, and this is too low. You need to do more. Um, so that'll be part of this, this process. Uh, I don't know if that answers it, but no, for sure. And then basically, as long as you kind of stay within that paired metric, I like how that's kind of almost like a check and balance on your growth, right? Then you get to make those decisions that you're talking about with your sales leader about headcount and ramp and things like that within your business unit. And then you, that, again, that's on you to make that planning happen. Yes, that is the goal. That is the goal. It's easier. It's very simple when I, when I explain it right now. But you know, when, <laughs> if there's another global pandemic, you know, like who knows? But yeah, I'll check back in in a few months. Yeah. Before we go, at the end of each show, we're going to ask each guest the same lightning round of questions. Ready? Here we go. Best book you've read in the last six months? Okay. Humankind, A Hopeful History a guy by the name of Rutger Bregman. It's basically a different perspective on the nature, on, on human nature. Uh, it's awesome. Cool. You're not necessarily in ops anymore, but I think the question still works. Favorite part about working in ops? I like finding trends uh, that are actionable, like seeing something in the data that tells us something that people didn't see before and then bring it to light and helping like change the business because of it. Other way around, least favorite part about working in ops? Having to deal with when the tech breaks. <laughs> some, some sort of flow doesn't work. Things you don't miss. Yeah, exactly. Um, somebody who impacted you getting the job you have today? Um, so a guy by the name of Alex Soleil. He is now the COO at On24. Uh, he was the VP of ops at... Success factors. When I first got the role there, he hired me. We've stayed close over the years. He's somebody that I always sort of lean on, think about like, what would Alex do? He's always there to sort of answer questions when I'm sort of de- debating topics. So he would be my person. That's awesome. And last one for you, one piece of advice for people who want to have your job someday. I think that if you're in ops and you want to get out of ops, you are going to have to put yourself in some uncomfortable positions uh, and potentially ask for it, push for it, but also be willing to take sort of a sidestep. When I was in, you know, I I had gotten to the point where uh, as sort of a a VP of ops at the time for a while reporting to CEO, I mean, in every big meeting, that happens at the company from assessing an acquisition to deciding like a department that we're going to add or get rid of and in all of the, like, the board meetings and big stuff. And to take the role, it was not in pay. Frankly, it was still an increase in pay because, you know, salespeople make more than options, which shouldn't be a shock to anybody, but in responsibility or in like level of visibility, I definitely took a step back in order to go into sales but I think it's still going to be the benefit for me in the long term. And I'm still probably not even back to where I was, but I personally think it's worth it. 
Thank you so much to Ryan Tobin from Gainsight for joining us on this week's episode of Operations. If you liked what you heard, please make sure that you are subscribed to our show so that it shows up in your feed every other Friday. Also, if you feel like you're learning something from this show, please leave us a six-star review on Apple Podcasts, six-star reviews only. If you are new to the show, what that means is leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and leaving us six stars in the comments because that's just the way we do things. All right, that's going to do it for me. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. 